Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Italian-American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian-Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian-Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri, and we have a very cool episode for you today that will be all about the beautiful island of Sicily with wonderful author, John Cahey, author of Seeking Sicily. Dolores, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Anthony. How about you? Good, good. I'm excited for uh, this episode. We interviewed John Cahey, who was just another down-to-earth person who opened up and just kind of shared his experiences and a lot of time that he spent in Sicily diving into that island. Yeah, John's a true storyteller, and, and you hear that when he speaks, and you hear it in his books, you know, when you're reading them. And he is completely enamored with Italy and Sicily in particular. And it's really very charming. You feel that passion for the country coming out of him. And I find it particularly moving because he's not Sicilian. As he said, I, I don't even know if I have any Italian blood at all running through my body. But this country and Sicily in particular has just taken him and he's really given a lot of his life to it. It's really beautiful. For me, I found some family recently in Sicily and I looked up books to learn about Sicily and I found John's book, Seeking Sicily, and that's how we ended up tracking him down. And He was gracious enough to do this interview, which we are going to jump into now. Just want to mention to make sure to like our page on Facebook at Italian American Podcast because we are putting updates out there and also we're on Twitter at Ital American. And Dolores just got us up on Instagram. What's that one, Dolores? That is Italian American at Italian American, one word. Awesome. So we're pretty much all over the socials. You can connect with us. You can tell us what you want to hear, what guests you want us to go for. We don't care how big they are. We will send them an email. We'll reach out to them. We'll try to get them on the show. And if there's anything that you want us to cover specifically, like for example, I know we talk about it in this episode, again, the Italian language, reached out to a couple of language learning experts that are not Italian and that learned Italian to try to see if we can get some episodes on that. Cause I think that that would be something that would be fun to kind of to cover. And Anthony, if I can add very quickly with reference to Instagram, I really want to encourage our listeners to email some of their family photos to Dolores at ItalianAmericanCentral.com. And Dolores is spelled D-O-L-O-R-E-S. Because uh, for those of you who are already following us, that you can see already that it's going to be a space to celebrate our families and celebrate our traditions and uh, both Anthony and I are really excited to see your own family photos, both the old black and white ones and your current ones. You know, how do you keep the traditions alive? How are you doing your dinners? How are you guys staying together as families? Awesome. We're going to jump into the main segment. I'm going to bring us in with a quote from Gouda. 
is goes as follows. This was in the beginning of John's book. That's why I picked it. And it's a pretty powerful quote. It says, to have seen Italy without having seen Sicily is not to have seen Italy at all. For Sicily is the clue to everything. All right, now it's time for our main segment of our show. I'm honored to introduce our guest for today, John Cahey. John has spent more than 30 years as a newspaper wire service reporter and editor who has really turned his love for Italy into a career of writing and speaking on the subject. His third book, Seeking Sicily, A Cultural Journey Through Myth and Reality, takes a unique approach beyond the typical travel narrative. It explores Sicilian culture through a variety of elements, its cuisine, which draws from the influences from the various nations that once controlled the island. Its authors, who, like their fellow islanders, consider themselves Sicilian rather than Italian, and we'll dig into that. And also through the the people's deeply ingrained isolationist attitudes of Sicily's 3,000-year history of being ruled by one invader after another, which makes Sicily such an interesting island. Cahey also examines the influence of the mafia and the impact of Sicilian Greek myths that still permeate the Mediterranean's largest, most mysterious, and most historically significant island. John, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hi, John. Good to have you. Hi, good to have you too, Dolores. <laughs> All right, John. So we're obviously excited to have you. I mean, I have family still in Sicily, and it's a thrill to be able to talk to you. I really enjoyed your book because it is that travel narrative. It's not a travel guide. You really dig into it, and you tell stories, and you go and you visit people there. So before we, we dive into that, what got you interested in general, John, about writing about Italy? Well, I've always been writing. I've uh, been in the newspaper, in and around the newspaper business uh, for 45 years and uh, before I retired. And I visited Sicily in, uh, in 1986 for the very first time. It was a military trip. I was in the Navy Reserve at the time and went there for two weeks of training duty at a place called Siganilla outside of Catania. And we had some time to explore a little bit, and uh, and driving around in a rented car, I became enamored of the place. It was just the comfortable climate, the te- the temperate time of year that it was. It was the food. It was uh, talking to people. In those days, I spoke no Italian whatsoever, and I, that there were enough people around who spoke enough English that I could have conversations about their island. And discovering Agrigento and the Valley of the Temples, uh, just coming over the crest of a hill and seeing all of those Greek temples lined up across that plateau was uh, a mind-changing experience. It was something that really got me excited. I realized that there were more Greek temples in, uh, in Sicily than in southern Italy than there are in Greece, and they're yeah. better taken care of. Uh, so... It was all of that combination that got me thinking about it. And then I started going to Italy in 1990 after that trip, uh, three or four, four or five years later. And it just sort of grew. And I ended up going back almost every year ever since. And uh, went back to Sicily in, uh, in about 2008, 2009, and started working on what was my third book about Italy. It's become my favorite. It's become a place I keep going back to, and I'll go back to again next year to do another book about Sicily. So it's a combination of all of this. 
in my adult life of going back to uh, Italy and really being quite selfish about it and can't imagine. I've, I've often told my wife, she says, well, let's go to Paris. And I said, why would you want to go to Paris when you could go to <laughs> Why would you want to go to Paris when you could go to Catania? Because <laughs> Paris is a lovely place, and uh, we've been there a few times. But Sicily keeps calling me back, and as far as I know, I have no Italian blood in my in my system, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> Sounds like it was love at first sight for you. It really caught your heart. It was, and it was yeah. it, like I said, a little bit of everything: uh, climate, food people especially people and mm. and the ancientness of it all and then finding out the history and its history of of the conquests of the island by one nation after another that all contributed to that rich culture at this point john you've been to many areas of italy am i correct not well, just uh, sicily i've been i've spent time in uh, the north in the venice area i've spent time in tuscany and southern Italy, and, and of course Sicily, and a lot of time in the in Rome and so forth. So I in Florence, I've been around, uh, but I most of my time, if you add up total days, total weeks, uh, Sicily gets the gets gets most of that. So why have the Sicilian people, the people in particular of all the people in Italy, caught your heart so much? One thing I found in, in a place that I keep going back to, so I've gotten to know it well and people remember me when I go back, is Rocamulto on the south coast. And I, I think this my experience there, my first trip there, I was there two and a half weeks uh, doing research about Leonardo Shasha, and, uh, who was one of the Sicilian authors I write extensively about. And people were a little withdrawn, not real open. I could always uh, get questions answered and so forth, but they weren't real forthcoming. And I, I, I considered that as I learned more about the culture to be sort of an initial Sicilian trait. The second time I went there, I made four trips there when I was writing that book. And uh, the second time I went there, people started to remember me from the previous time, maybe, you know, six, nine months apart. And uh, the third time I went, people were saying hello to me on the street. And uh, that became uh, really eye-opening to me. And the fourth time I went there, people were inviting me to sit down with them in the, in the local coffee shop. Uh, they call them bars, of course, in Italy, as everybody knows. They're not in the bars in the American sense. And uh, if they spoke enough English... And if I spoke enough Italian, we could we could have a conversation and we could get by uh, learning about each other. And uh, and I was introduced to other people from some of these folks and it just sort of spread and went beyond all of that. And I'll be going back there again after the first of the year. And I'm looking forward to seeing many of these people who I remember and they'll remember me. And it, it's just part of the whole capturing the uh, the essence of the Italian people once they get to know you. You're a friend for life. Hey, John, on that point, I think in your book, and I think it's it's some what in general, it's known that the Sicilians, and I don't know if they're all, you know, I don't know if this attitude carries with them or if it gets less and less over the years, but they do have this attitude of they were kind of taken over by Italy. They're the very isolationist, like I said in your introduction, and they feel like, you know, Sicilian culture, the language is, is a whole different story. It's their own thing. And I'm wondering... 
how evident that is when you're there. Can you feel that? Do you see that? I think the biggest way you see it is when you uh, when you make a reference to Italy, particularly northern Italy. You sort of get a look that not a look against what you're about me personally or or the traveler personally, but you sort of get a, a shrug of the shoulders and uh, and a rolling of the eyes, and they absolutely consider themselves Sicilians before they would ever call themselves Italians. They're only Italians when the national team is in the world. Right. <laughs> they fly the uh, Sicilian flag. They uh, uh, the only time you see the Italian flag flying is when uh, for for public buildings and that type of thing. And uh, at the schools, it's a Sicilian flag, and maybe an Italian flag is sort of in the background a little bit. So, so that's one of the ways you see the last conqueror, as I say in the book, the last, you know, after, after a, a series of conquerors, you know, over, over 3000 years, some 12 uh, empires have, uh, have claimed Sicily as their own over the, over the millennia. And the last conqueror was Northern Italy and, uh, it, it brought Sicily and, and Southern Italy into, into the North and created the Italian nation, and uh, and there have been books done recently that I've read that indicate that perhaps that was a bad idea. Mm. Perhaps they should have. There should be two or three different nations involved in what is today Italy. Of course, that's not going to change. But but it, from a historical perspective, so you can see it's disparate. The Northerners look down as a as a. Uh, I don't want to stereotype all Northerners, certainly. But many Northerners look down upon Southerners, and uh, and one Northern politician, I believe from Milan, was talking about the uh, the football team from the North going down to play Palermo, and he was upset about that. He says they're going to Africa. They're going to Africa. Now. <laughs> they consider Sicily part of Africa, and it's part of Italy, and and that's the prejudice you see. Yeah, there's this tension between the kind of modern urban northern half of the country and the the more rural agricultural southern part of the country and it's very clear if you're around enough of of either group but personally with me growing up around so many nebulidans the southern italians there they were very you felt it very strongly i do have some family um that that is from the north they they moved there when they were very young, so they kind of consider themselves northern. And there is a little bit of an air of, of kind of uppityness, so much so that I, I remember when I was learning proper Italian in college, that when I came home and I was around the family, and especially the older Italians, I wouldn't speak proper Italian because it's, you know, it seemed almost like I would be putting on airs. Hmm. If I did so, so I, I would be careful to keep speaking to them in the dialect out of respect. Right. And uh, and perhaps you should speak to them in, out of the dialect because it's such a personal family thing and, mm. uh, and it keeps you closer and, and it's your common tie with these folks as you leave, go out into the world, get educated and that type of thing. Uh, even, you know, go to college and, and so forth and continue your education. You're still tied to that family culture. Family is of the essence. Family is everything. And as you well know, I'm sure, Dolores, family mm -hmm. is where it all starts. It's uh, your first loyalty is to your family. Your second loyalty is to your village. Your third loyalty is to 
your province and uh, and region and uh, and maybe loyalty ends there. Mm, well put, John. Yeah, yeah. that's good. That's I a, agree with that. That's a tweetable. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very succinct. John, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are Sicilian-American. Actually, Dolores, I didn't, I didn't tell you this, but you know, Dolores and I are going to the Italian-American Museum in New York City. And John, I know you said you've been there. We're going to interview the director. So I was doing a little research on Italian-American history, immigration, and I, and I realized that I found that about 80, they approximate 85% of all Italian immigrants that came to the United States were from Southern Italy and Sicily. Mm-hmm. So odds are there's a lot of listeners listening to the show that are, are Sicilian, but probably a lot of them have never been to Sicily. So John, if I were to ask you, like, you know, if, if you're just trying to describe it to someone in general, and I said, you know, what is Sicily like? What are some of the images that come to mind for you? As far as that immigration is concerned, the images that I have, uh, are that uh, the poverty was so overwhelming, so bone-crushing in the South uh, in the late 1800s after unification because the North, which was eager to unify all of Italy, including Sicily, including Calabria, virtually turned their back, its back collected back on, on the South. It didn't pour resources into it as it promised it would. And the South, under this this northern uh, oppression. Uh, the North only wanted uh, its young men to be in the army, for example. Uh, uh, in the 1920s, when Mussolini was building uh, what he thought was going to be another Roman Empire, they were eager to have young young men become soldiers uh, when they were uh, in North Africa, taking over Libya and uh, Somalia and, and those kinds of places. But they weren't eager to do much economically for the South. Agriculture failed, and it, it absolutely drove, in the late 1800s, early 20th century, tens of thousands of Southerners to the Americas. They went to South America, they went to Canada, they went to uh, the United States. And now, the contrast to me is you go to these villages that were virtually emptied out of uh, able-bodied males they're wonderful tourist destinations. They're cleaned, they're restored, uh, beautiful cobblestone streets that back in those days were just rough dirt, boulder-strewn uh, passageways between buildings in the heart of the villages. And now it's wonderful. And there's T-shirt shops in some of these places, and uh, the tourists are welcomed to open arms. And I, I said this in a couple of books about Southern Italy, including the Sicily book that I remembered a conversation I had with a gentleman on a train, and I said, isn't this ironic? You know, people are coming back, and its tourism is strong, and these villages are wonderful, and they're considered paradises, and why would anybody leave? And he sort of would smile at me, and he said, you know, you can't eat quaint. (laughs) And I thought that was rather profound. Yeah, yeah. And as Jerry Mangione, who was uh, a Sicilian-American, a, a great writer who passed away a few years ago, wrote in a book, he was talking about how his mother was always extolling, in the United States they were immigrants, and his mother was always extolling the beauty and the wonderfulness of Sicily, the food, the vegetables, the fruit, the trees, the people, the, every, everybody was beautiful, and, and she would go on and on and on. And his father would pull him aside at quiet moments and say, you know, 
that's her view of it. Let me tell you how it really was. Mm. Wow. And, and Mangione would talk about that uh, denial that many Sicilian Americans would have about Sicily and the way it really was. Well, there's like a waxing nostalgia, right? So I, I had kind of the exact same thing growing up. My father would talk about his little town right around Naples as if it were paradise on mm. earth. Mm-hmm. And then my mother, who grew up, you know, not about a mile away, perhaps two miles away, she would kind of do the same. She would be like, it was nothing like that. <laughs> and there's nothing left for me there. And it was hard and it was not beautiful. And I love America and I'm never leaving, <laughs> you know, so it's true. But there's a nostalgia that kind of can uh, smooth over all the dark spots, right? In memory. Have you been to that town? I have several times. My parents were very good like that. What is your, what is it, how does it impact you today? What, what was the, your feeling about it? You know, I think when I, when I was younger, I vividly remember the first time I was taken there. And I remember my mother especially grew up extremely poor. She, it was just her and her mother and uh, they struggled a lot. And I can see myself, I was, I was under maybe 10 years old and I remember she knocked on the front door of the home she grew up in and and the lady let us in. And I remember just thinking, this is a cave. Mm-hmm. You know, this is unbelievable to me. I, it was, I can still see myself now because it was so contrary to yeah. how I had been raised, you know, what, what they had done to raise us children in such different environment. Um, it was literally another world. It was literally mm-hmm. another world. But as I got older, it, it you know, it, now when we go there, it feels really good to be there. And I feel a connection to my cousins who were there. I feel a connection to the place. Although, you know, I'm not fooling anybody. I'm definitely the American when I'm walking, <laughs> when I'm walking through those villages, you know, you kind of stand out like a sore thumb, but um, they, they do kind of change. And of course, makes you extremely grateful to have grown up, um, you know, in America and had parents who sacrificed, literally sacrificed their lives for, for yours. Well, I, I, I'm taken with what you said about the cave. It, mm. I, I assume it was a, it, at one time it was a real cave that a home had been built inside of, right? Um, it's certainly, I mean, probably, I don't know that for a fact, but uh, yes, I'm not exaggerating that she had an outhouse. I mean, she literally had an outhouse. Well, so. in Sicily, for example, there are plenty of uh, instances in Rocamulto where Sasha grew up. He, he didn't live in a cave, but there are people who built, the caves have been around, of course, for thousands, millions of years, and they've been occupied over over the millennia by different sweeps and different groups of people sweeping through the area and uh and but but there are homes actually building caves in Sheikli in southeast sicily for example there are beautiful homes in fact i'm hoping to rent a small apartment in one for a couple of weeks uh, oh, after the first of the year just to have the experience of living there and so people still live in caves but they're modernized hmm. That's really interesting. Wow. That's really interesting. I think the whole discussion is interesting because the reason that Dolores and I wanted to start this podcast was because we wanted to help Italian-Americans kind of understand where they came from. And the discussion that John just talked about on the train is probably the thought that a lot of Italian-Americans have when they look at the pictures now of Sicily, the hotels, you know, the luxury hotel, whatever the case may be, they're saying, you know, my family was there and they left and they came here and... I don't understand what's going on. And and in, there was one part in your book too, John, 
that reminded me was the part about the mining. Mm -hmm. Sulfur mining. And Talk about that with the families and the kids for a minute. It was pretty uh, overwhelming, I think, for by by our modern 21st century, 20th century, 21st century perspective. The sulfur miners were incredibly poor, the lowest of the low, as far as income, as far as poverty goes. It was to the point where the, the male children at age 10 through 14, 16, had to work in the sulfur mines. These small children, these small boys would go into the mines. They would be assigned, they would essentially be purchased from the family by an adult sulfur miner to be their hod carrier. They would, uh, this adult would stand there with a pickaxe and knock the sulfur from the walls of the mines. And the child would pick up these big, large chunks and put it on their backs and uh, carry it out and then come back down, take another large chunk out. And it would go on that way. For six days a week, that adult miner owned that child and pretty had every bit of control over, over that child. And on Saturday nights, they would walk back. They, uh, they slept in the mines and so forth during the week. And on Saturday nights, they would walk back to the village, and they would be part of their family again for the next 24 hours through Sunday. They'd go to church. They would... Uh, be around their brothers and sisters, their mothers and fathers. And then on Monday morning, back to the mine, they would go. They wouldn't be in school. They wouldn't be educated. And I'm sorry, when you say children, what what ages are we talking? We're talking about uh, the boys about age 10 through anywhere from 10 to 14, 15 years old. The minor would pay the family for that child, for the use of that child. They would essentially own them for a couple of years. And the family would use the money to survive, of course. And if the child ran away, and sometimes they did that, if the child ran away and tried to get away from all of that, the family had to pay the money back. And so there was a great interest, and the police and authorities would go look for the child and drag them back when they found them. And they would work, uh, and, and it's painful to say this, but because of the heat of the mind, these men and these boys worked in the nude. Wow, and wow. Uh, and slept that way. And uh, there are pictures in the miners, uh, old miners' home that's in Rocamulto, for example. None of the miners that are still alive worked that way because uh, they were later in the 20th century. And uh, But we're talking about the early 20th century, the late 1800s here. Uh, there are pictures of miners working in the nude uh, on the walls of their rest home. And it's quite chilling to see that. And uh, there was an interesting story that I told in the book about Booker T. Washington, the man from Tuskegee in the early part of the 20th centuries. In 1910, he went to Europe to see how the peasant class throughout Europe compared to the African-American in the South. And uh, he has a whole chapter on his experiences of in Sicily work, uh, and going into the sulfur mines and watching these people work. And Booker T. Washington wrote that compared to the uh, lowest of the low in the southern United States, African-American, who, ha- who had very little education, if any, the Sicilian peasant was the lowest down, lower than as far as ability to, to survive, ability to earn money, support a family, were far worse off 
than the lowest of the low in the United States among the African-American agriculture worker. Wow, that's intense. And, and that was quite eye-opening. That is pretty crazy, and I, I do distinctly remember that from your book. And again, it all comes back to thinking about you know, where, where you came from and some of the things that went on, which I think was uh, it's just, you know, it was sad in a way, but it's also important for people to understand that. Hey, John, one, one thing I'd ask you about, too, I know Sicily is very famous for their celebration of Holy Week. I'm, I'm wondering, I believe you've been there for that. Is that right? You're talking about the, the build up to Easter. And yep. Yeah, I was in Enna, which, uh, which is a remarkable experience to have. And I would urge anybody interested in processions and those kinds of things to to go to Enna or any of the really smaller villages around Enna. They're, they're different in different ways. And I spent a week in Enna just, just watching all of the processions and so forth uh, for that Holy Week, starting on the Monday before and culminating on, on Easter Sunday. And uh, they do it in a Spanish style in that part of, of Sicily, where they wear the white cloaks and the hoods. And in Anna, it's done in silence. And uh, some people following these groups do barefoot as part of their uh, penance. It goes on for six or seven hours. Small children dressed as their parents are dressed, as their fathers are dressed for the small boys, young little girls dressed as, as nuns or as, uh, let's say, the Virgin Mary in a, in a white smock and that type of thing and adults sort of shepherding these children, and nobody falls out, nobody leaves. It's it's all done over a period of six hours. They walk a few miles, and then they turn around and they come back. And the men are carrying these giant, huge statues on these platforms. And it's really quite a remarkable experience and, and remarkable to see the difference of what it's like on Good Friday when it's very, very somber and very, very uh, low-key. And uh, the band, the town band is playing dirges and so forth. And it's quite, quite overwhelming. And then contrast that to Easter Sunday when when, uh, Jesus is risen and everybody's joyful and Mary is joyful and they're different statues. They're the risen Christ and the and the happy Mary and uh, 75 men carrying each of these platforms oh. all in lockstep and unison and and making them move so that there is a a sense of of movement among these statues and it's really quite a remarkable thing to behold well john that's a, a good dovetail for something that i feel like you when you're talking about sicily you you kind of can't ignore so there's this of course huge deep rich catholic culture and then on kind of the other side of the human experience, which some might call the dark side, there is, of course, uh, the mafia is a, a huge part of Sicily, or at least I should say in Italian-American culture or American pop culture, right? We're used to these yeah, films cool. like The Godfather and some Scorsese flicks and all that. And uh, I feel like we can't talk about Sicily without talking about the mafia, if you can talk a little bit about how it's impacted the the country and um, and such in the past and currently, you're absolutely right. You cannot talk about Sicily without mentioning that. When I first was planning the book, I wasn't going to have any real in depth discussion of the mafia because uh, it was just so. I mean, you go around to some of these high tourist places in in Sicily. Uh, 
and even around the Tower of Pisa in Tuscany, for heaven's sakes. Mm-hmm. And you've got you've got the the Godfather T-shirts, and you just can't avoid it. So you, I couldn't avoid it, and I had I had to deal with it, and I dealt with it in a different way. The mafia. So of course I give the history uh, where the name comes from. It's a, there's a belief that it uh, came from an Arabic uh, name from around the the Tropani area in western Sicily. And how it evolved, and it primarily came to uh, fruition and and became a bigger issue after unification in 1870, because uh, the government, the northern government, was not helping Sicily at all. They weren't putting money into institutions. They weren't didn't have. If you had a police force, uh, you Sicilians were very suspicious people because of all of the conquerors that they had had. They had to sort of remain inside themselves emotionally and they're very suspicious people and they didn't trust the institution so to protect themselves they had to rely on these groups of people in the in the agricultural areas that became the genesis of the mafia and uh, it sort of grew into what we think in our minds the mafia is today in italy it was incredibly bloody uh, through decades Uh, they were killing each other they were killing public officials there was a time period over a period of a couple of years in Palermo where there were a thousand people killed over a two-year period in Palermo, for example, oh, wow. in the 1990s, including uh, anti-mafia judges, Falcone, Borsellino, other judges, other uh, police officers, uh, police colonels, Cabinieri officers were killed. And there became such an uproar when Falcone and Borsellino were killed two months apart that it sort of drove the mafia underground. There were there were massive trials where hundreds of them were sentenced to prison, and it sort of drove them underground. They're still there. It still happens. The, the murders don't happen like they used to. And most of the uh, capos, the, the bosses of the mafia in Sicily, have been arrested. The current capo hasn't been seen for 20 or 30 years. And uh, he's in hiding somewhere, and they don't seem to be able to find him. But they've arrested all of his uh, lawyers, all of his lieutenants, all of his bookkeepers. Uh, they've all gone to prison. And so it's kind of driven everything underground. There's still uh, protection money being collected from certain business people. But there's a whole organization. It's sort of like a chamber of commerce that's getting business people to reject that and to refuse to pay the piso, to repay the protection money to the mafia. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a slow-growing movement that has some hope, particularly in Palermo. But it's still there. But I must emphasize this. I've been there weeks and weeks and weeks over the last uh, four or five years, and I have never felt unsafe, uh, whether it's uh, in the middle of the day or whether it's late at night. I've never felt unsafe in Sicily. And there's certainly no violence that way against tourists. Mm-hmm. You might run into the occasional pickpocket on a crowded bus, but uh, that can happen to you in New York City, too. <laughs> Probably more often. <laughs> in, in, yeah. in, in California, in New York City, right. you, you can be shot for the 25 cents in your pocket. Mm-hmm. That won't happen. Violence of that sort will not happen to you in Sicily or Italy. Yeah. I think that genesis of of the mob that you mentioned in Sicily, where it, it was kind of this idea that they had been left by officials, by their government, you know, and they needed to to survive. I mean, if I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is kind of the popular understanding of 
mafia mentality also here in, in America, correct? Italian immigrants. That's how it began. And it certainly evolved into major corporations, uh, in a sense, mm. big family operations and so forth. But uh, it's different here in the sense that you have different families that have their own territories and so forth. In, in Sicily, you have one boss who is over the whole organization. And then you have sub-bosses uh, in different families and so forth, but it's controlled from, it's a pyramid. In places like Naples, you have the Camorra, which is sort of horizontal. It's a horizontal structure. It's not a vertical structure. Hmm. And you have different families who are independent of one another, and that causes a lot of warfare between families in the Camorra. And it's the same way in Calabria and to a certain degree in Puglia. Naples used to be a very scary place to be and yeah. uh, it is not so much anymore i i have a feeling things have calmed down a great deal in the last 10 12 years in naples because they know what uh, the impact of that kind of fear is towards uh, tourism and tourism has become very important there as a way of making money yeah my father used to take us to naples and would not let us get out of the car <laughs> It was always a real fun visit to the city of Naples, just driving right by. <laughs> and I, I think there are certain places in Naples I probably wouldn't go into, but it's more open to somebody of my sensibilities than it used to be 12, yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah, that I should say that was a while ago. It yeah. was a while ago. Mm -hmm. For example, the Spanish Quarter, which used to be scary as the devil, now has bright neon lights and uh, welcoming the tourists uh, to the restaurants and so forth. The only thing you've got to be careful of is the streets are so narrow, but they race their Vespas yeah. and their motorcycles down those narrow streets, and you have to watch that you don't get hit by one mm. of them. That's, that's the scariest part now of that part of Naples. Agreed. <laughs> John, talk to us a little bit about, just from what you remember, some of the highlights of the food in Sicily. We've heard so much about Sicilian cooking, and I know you've mentioned a lot of people in the book, but just you know, give us some of the things that you remember from your visits that stand out. The food itself, it's, it's unique. I've always felt, and this may not be true in every case, but I've always felt the farther north you go, the milder the tomato sauce is that's on your pasta. Oh, interesting. Gravy. Uh, and, and <laughs> it's kind of a creamy, creamy tomatoey sauce, uh, uh, smooth sauce by the time you get to Rome. And then as you go farther south, it gets chunkier and spicier. It's got more of like a gravy feel. Anthony and I shamelessly plan on fueling the war between whether sauce is called sauce or gravy. <laughs> you can clearly see what side I am on. I just want to put that out there. Fight it out. Yeah. Are you calling it sauce or gravy? Oh, it's sauce. It's yeah, in, in our it's... house, is always sauce. Azalds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I in the South, I think it's sauce. <laughs> I've never known anybody to call it gravy, but I am aware that there is a battle over that. Yes, yes. It's very Italian-American, I think, the gravy part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. We'll, we'll get as many food experts on here as we can until we confirm that it's gravy. <laughs> and I believe this. It's not about the sauce or the gravy. It's about mm. the pasta. And the ah. sauce the gravy is just supplemental to that. It's, it's about the pasta first and the sauce and the gravy second. Mm. Well and I believe that, by the way. There's one other thing in your book that I, it's just a small thing, but it stood out to me when I read it. You were talking about, you know, a lot about the feast in Racalmuto that they have there in July. 
And you said that there was a crazy time. They they run horses up through the church, and and it's a tradition. But there was an old old woman that spoke to you, and she looked at you, and she said something like "tradizione," like meaning like tradition. It, you know, it keeps us alive. Like a lot of this stuff looks silly to you, people with horses going into church, but for us, it kind of keeps us alive. And I thought that that was a really cool part of the book. There was a procession where they bring a, a really, it's its not a religious procession on this particular, it's like the Saturday night before the Sunday horses thing. And uh, you don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen late. I sat down with my back against a post on the main street. It was still light out and because I wanted to have a good spot because I knew this festival, there were thousands and thousands of people there in this little tiny town in this little village uh, and it's just jam packed and uh, I'm sitting there and it, it, and it's a tall circular kind of a structure and there are flags coming from it and uh, a flag at the very top is, is dominating the whole affair and it's pulled in this mo- in these modern times is pulled by a small tractor and in the olden times I think it was probably pulled by donkeys or oxen. And uh, what happens is the young men of a certain landowner class of people, and I don't know if it can be everybody today because we're a far more ecumenical society uh, than we used to be, but in the olden days, it was the landowner class whose sons, unmarried sons, would suddenly burst out of the crowd, not knowing where it was going to start to happen. It would suddenly burst out of the crowd and start to climb this tower and elbow each other and punch each other and fight their way to the top. And the one who actually got to hold the flag at the very top, the winner, then had to be married within the year. Wow. And it's one they, way to do it. They, <laughs> and it happened right in front of me. I mean, all of a sudden, out of the crowd burst these young men. And it was the most remarkable thing. And that's when all of this was over with. And, and the young man was yelling from the top and waving the flag, absolutely joyful that he had been victorious. And the woman saw me standing there. I guess I must have been shaking my head or something. Mm. And she said, Traditione, it's what keeps us alive. And uh, it was a wonderful moment. And the next day, you have the horses that are beautifully out uh, liveried. They have incredible saddles and all kinds of colorful harnesses and so forth. And you have a rider on the back of the horses and men on each side of the horse, and they're leading them up these steep uh, stone steps up to the church, the Madonna of the Mountain Church. And the mass is underway inside the church, and the horses go in through the door. And when they reach the top and they go in, and, and the audience of the congregation inside the church applauds and uh, comments on how beautiful the uh, harnesses and so forth are. And then the horse goes out, and a little while later, you hear the drums, the tom-toms signal everything in processions Mm. in Sicily. You hear the drums, and another rider on another horse, and two more individuals on each side. And in the last few years, women have done it. And so it's becoming more and more of a, uh, both genders are able to uh, participate in this, whereas before it was uh, strictly a male kind of a province. I only saw men uh, when I was there four years ago, but in the last two years, I understand women are doing it, and I think that's just terrific. So okay, they, okay. They, those steps, there's 44 stone steps. I counted every one of them, wow. and they're steep, 
and these horses clatter their way up and these men are on each side sort of guiding them up so that they don't panic and the rider on the back gets to go up there's a classic photograph of leonardo shasha on the back of a horse of course it would have been 20 30 years ago and uh, it's just a wonderful thing to watch in reference to you you mentioned the women participating now I, i feel very strongly that that is a vital aspect of traditions which is that you allow them to change or else they break, you know, and then that's when they die. You know, you, you allow them to have an essence that remains the same, right? Right. And then perhaps the outer can shift and grow as, as the decades and the times and the generations change and grow. That's right. In in the 1960s, my closest friend here in Salt Lake City is Sicilian American and his family is from Rocamolto and it's just coincidental, absolutely coincidental. Mm -hmm. Because he, I, he's a distant cousin of Leonardo Shasha's. That's wow. how I sort of got turned into this whole yeah. thing through my friend Leonardo. Uh, his name is Leonardo also. Chiarelli is his last name. And he's a historian. He's the definitive historian on the Arabs in Sicily from the 9th century through the 11th. And uh, that's his specialty. He's written the definitive book on that. But at any rate, Leonardo tells me when he went as a teenager in the 1960s, Women did not walk alone on the streets. They had to be, if they went anywhere on the streets, they had to be with a male relative, a brother, a father, a cousin. Uh, They could never walk alone. And this is in 1960s. And he said, and then he went back in the 70s, and all of a sudden he's seen women walking alone. And now you see them, and they're in miniskirts, and uh, they're independent, they're, uh, they're business people, all of this kind of thing. And that whole tradition has completely ended. It's just alive in the 60s and, of course, before that. And then you read a story by Pirandello about a woman uh, who marries well. I mean, they're both uh, from not royal families, but both from... Landholders, maybe? Landholder families, very wealthy families, in the palazzos and so forth. And I'm not sure what village this supposedly happened in. But Pirandello writes about her. She's like 23 years old. She marries this uh, very wealthy landowner and... uh, he suddenly dies. They've only been married a year or two, and she has one or two children, and he suddenly dies, and she has to wear black. This is the late 1800s, or the early part of the 20th century. She has to wear black and never leave the house. Wow. She cannot be seen in town, in the village. She must never leave the house except at five o'clock in the morning, when someone would escort her to the church and she would have a private mass with the priest and confession at 5 a.m. so no one would see her. And uh, the tragedy of that. Yeah. She could never remarry. And she was in love with this poor dead husband's brother. And he was in love with her, but they could never be together. John, why don't you tell us about what's next for you? I just... uh, Signed a contract with publisher in the last few weeks, uh, the St. Martin's Press, Thomas Dunn Books, which is an imprint of St. Martin's Press. Wonderful. Um, oh, for uh, the fifth book, uh, but this will be the second book on Sicily. And I'm going to be going to a lot of small places. I'm going to be tr- probably spending time in uh, maybe a dozen or more Sicilian villages uh, to try to expand my knowledge of the length and the breadth of the island because I focused on the same places for so many 
trips because I've been there for this reason or that reason. Number one, I want to explore the island and get around more of it where I haven't been. And uh, number two, the publisher wants me to write about that. So I'll be writing about small places that tourists don't usually get to, places that don't have T-shirt shops with uh, <laughs> uh image on the front of it. And, <laughs> yeah. The which I think is horrible. Tourists buying those things, that's not what Sicily is today. It's mm-hmm. uh, its just not, and it, and it bothers me a lot, but that's another story. But at any rate, get into places that tourists don't generally get into. And whether people follow me there or whether it's just interesting from a culture point of view. And I've, I've got messages out to different Sicilian friends of mine to uh, to let me know if they have any recommendations about where to go and, and what to check out. How cool is that to go to small towns <laughs> in Sicily and write? I, I wish you the best of luck. I know that you're going to do great. This other book, I mean, I, I've got the whole thing tabbed up and highlighted from A to Z. It's been an amazing read, and I'm, I'll be in Sicily in July, and hopefully we can get together. I know you'll be there too. I'm thrilled. My, my family that I found just recently is in Sortino, which is in Syracuse, and we'll be meeting with them. And I need to start learning Italian today. <laughs> presto, presto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, John, listen, we thank you so much for spending some time with us here. I'm sure we're going to have you on again in the future. I definitely want to check out your book on Southern Italy. And of course, uh, we'll be anxiously awaiting, and I know it's a few years, but I'll be anxiously awaiting this next book on the small towns of Sicily. Where can the listeners find you? I guess your website, or where's the best place? Amazon, the books? Uh, Amazon.com. Uh... Put in Seeking Sicily, uh, if you know how to spell my last name, it's K-E-A-H-E-Y. The website, my website is www.johnkehe, all one word, dot com. We'll list everything in the show notes. Like I said, italianamericanpodcast.com forward slash Sicily, all John's books, everything to make it real easy, put it in one place for you. And now let's head off into the Italian American stories segment of the show. All right. I hope you enjoyed that segment with John. We certainly did. It was really in-depth and he he told stories like we promised you, which made it really awesome. Mm -hmm. And kind of on that note, we're going to jump in here to our Italian American story segment. And in this segment today, you're going to hear from Dolores's mother. Dolores, give us a little preview of this audio. So as we discussed uh, in the podcast, everyone just listened to my, my mother grew up rather poor and had a tough life. And it was it was really just her and her mother for the most part. So in in this audio we're about to play, my mother is telling the story of the Southern Italian version of Christmas, which is actually La Bafana, and it happens in January. And um, she's going to tell a story here about uh, her own experience in this very small Southern town and what it was like for her as a little girl one particular Christmas. I've known this story for a long time. No matter how many times she tells it, it never ceases to kind of be this bittersweet story for me to hear. It's both really endearing and kind of sad. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay, Mommy, so Christmas is coming, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, why don't you um, maybe tell us a little bit about Christmas, what Christmas was like when you were a little girl in Italy, in Bayano. Maybe you have a story that kind of shows what Italy was like for you and Christmas? Okay, do I have a story? 
I have one story right now. I was about eight years old, and uh, Christmas time. Uh, it's um, after Christmas, January six. We come Bifana. All the kids they used to get the the toys on January six. So. In the morning, the January 6th, all the kids, we were outside the neighborhood, and all my friends, they used to oh, look what I got from Abivan, oh, look what I got from Abivan. And I never got anything, and I was keep quiet, you know, because we didn't have any money, my mother didn't have any money. One, one year, I went to, to this lady for all year to learn how to sew dresses. And at the end of the week, once she was done with a couple of dresses, she used to have me deliver these dresses. And when I used to deliver it, the people used to give me a tip, like five cents, ten cents, quarter. And I put it together almost a dollar. It was January 5th in Piazza. They used to have this guy who used to sell all, the, all kinds of toys. And with the money I had, I can only afford it to buy uh, little coffee sets, like dull co- dolly coffee sets. And I bought it, I went home, I put it on a chair next to my bed. And when I get up in the morning, I says, oh my God, I got a Bivana. But I was, I was the Bivana. <laughs> and I went outside too with all my friends who had a bicycle, who had a this, who had a that. And I went outside, I said, hey, I got a Bivana too. And I show my coffee my coffee uh, cups. I was so happy. They were the best year, my best Christmas, best Bevan of my life. Did I did I not know what you had done? Did she see you, or no, was it a secret? No, she didn't know. It was no secret. Just you know, she, she didn't, didn't know. Did, no. did the kids? Did they know it was? No, no. you played it off. Well? I played yes. No. I, I would never told the kids so, that because they would make fun of me. Right, of course. Yeah, no. So you, you, you didn't get any any gifts and so you went out and you, you got them I bought them my own, yeah, because uh, there you go. I feel so sad. Everybody say, I got this, I, got, I never got anything. Okay. okay, guys, don't make fun of my broke English. <laughs> I learned the hard way. <laughs> All right, wow, that was, a, that was a powerful story and again, it just goes to show you in what we talked about with John in that People came here from Italy because they lived in a lot of these conditions and because our parents or our grandparents didn't want us to have to go through some of these situations like Dolores' mother went through, basically. Mm-hmm. Also, Anthony, you know what I, I love about that story as well is as I can see in my mother the little girl version of my mother, that spirit that she and so many other Italian-American, Italian immigrants have and had, which was this, if if no one's going to give it to me, I'm going to make it myself. Right. I'm going to create it myself, that industriousness. That's right. The entrepreneurial spirit that we talked mm-hmm. about in episode two with Mary Tedesco. Right. Exactly. All right. So there was so much packed into the episode. We had a blast today. Just kind of mm-hmm. talking with John and winding Definitely. and then getting that story there from, from your mom was great. One thing I want to mention too is we want to develop this hashtag Italian American Central. 
So if you want to send pictures of your family, of your traditions, of quotes, of anything, of things you want to have on the show, topics, guests, you could tweet them at ItalAmerican, or you could hashtag your photos on Instagram, uh, Italian American Central. We want to share the love here. We're all Italian Americans, and we want to kind of share our traditions and, and kind of get a, you know, get a laugh, but also, you know, kind of get some of the feeling like when you hear a story like you just heard, even though Dolores's mom is not your mom, you, you still get those feelings. It brings you back to your family a bit. And that's the idea of mm. the segment of the show, but also really the show as a whole. Right. So that's that's important to us to, to bring you into the show as much as we possibly can. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's not just about Anthony and I. It's about all of us. All right. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Italian American podcast. Be sure to go to italianamericanpodcast.com forward slash Sicily for the recap. And you can also click the join us button on the top of our website and get on our newsletter and we'll email you the new episodes as we put them out. They'll be delivered to your inbox and you'll be the first to know about resources we're creating and other exciting things coming for Italian Americans. Again, that is italianamericanpodcast.com. Ci vediamo!